Well, good morning. It is, uh, it's good to be with you, Collective Church, and um, uh, my privilege and, and pleasure to be here, and, and hopefully the internet will cooperate and, and we can end our time here. Um, a few years ago, I found myself in New York City, and um, I, uh, I enjoy a bit of uh, photography uh, just as a hobbyist. And while I was in New York City, I was there for like five weeks, uh, there for like a residency program. Um, and this was probably, uh, I guess, maybe the, around the nine-year anniversary of 9-11. And um, I had some camera gear with me, uh, lenses, you know, big, big camera, big lenses, all these sorts of things. And I got up really early in the morning and I went down to the side of 9-11 um, to just take some pictures and, and to photograph uh, around, around there. And um, while I was there, um, as, the, as the morning kind of progressed, uh, more police and more author- people of authority kind of showed up. And I found myself uh, being directed in certain areas by police. Uh, you need to come this way. You need to go over here. And, and kind of, uh, I slowly kind of figured out uh, what they thought I was, uh, was press, a, a professional press photographer. And so lo and behold, uh, to me, I end up in this press gaggle um, with CNN and ABC News and all of these people, uh, these photographers, big cameras, expensive equipment, and I, completely uncredentialed, uh, end up side by side with all these people. I had no authority to be there. I had no credentials to be there. I guess I just looked the part. I was there before everybody else. And people just assumed if you've got nice gear, uh, you, must, you must be a, a pro. Uh, that is not who I am at all. And it was kind of strange to be in this place. People were like, who are you with, who are you with? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm, a, I'm freelance, freelance and, and, and things like this. I had no authority to be there. And yet here I was kind of in this space. Uh, what's funny about that is it happened again. Once I was living in Ireland, uh, the queen uh, came to visit uh, the town uh, that, that I was staying in. And so again, got all my camera gear, got up early. And uh, I found a spot that I thought would be perfect uh, on the route that she was there. And um, before long, I had all these professional uh, newspaper, you know, people alongside of me. And uh, they just assumed that I, w- I was among uh, those people. Like I had credentials and authority to be there. I didn't. Uh, I actually sent, a, sent my brother a text. We were texting back and forth. And I said, he, he asked me, hey, what are you doing? I said, I- I'm just getting in position to shoot the queen. And then I realized that if anybody is monitoring text, I was just waiting for the little like laser dots to show up on me from the snipers or, or whatever. So uh, I don't recommend that kind of language. But... Um, it's weird being in a place that you really aren't supposed to be in because you are not authorized to be there. Um, and that got me thinking as we were reading uh, this morning's text, which is really all about authority. Uh, who has the authority? Uh, who wields this authority? How do they kind of wield this authority and power? Um, it, it, it's strange to, to not have authority and yet be in that position like I was. I, I'm also now a parent. And so it's, uh, I experience the other side where I have the authority, but often it's not recognized, right? So if you've got toddlers or little kids, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase in your house, but it's, uh, you're not the boss of me. And um, I have to remind my, my kids when they were little that, uh, yes, I am. I am the boss of you. And uh, your, your sister might not be, but, but me and your mother certainly are. Um, So let's jump into our text because it's going to center around this question of authority. Who has authority? Particularly this question is, is does Jesus have the authority that he seems to be acting with? And so um, let's just jump in here and read our text this morning from Mark chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, 
By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave the authority, uh, who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In chapter 12, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, uh, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was, what the, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Here we have this uh, amazing story. Um, I've been following along a little bit with the series that you've been doing. Last week, we see Jesus clear out the temple. Um, and, and now he's in the temple again. And the authorities, the Sanhedrin, have come to him and they're questioning his authority. His authority really is being exercised freely. If you notice the way Jesus kind of acts, one, he's just kind of roaming around the temple. Um, he, had, he had cleaned it out. He had restricted things from happening there last week. And now he's back. He's teaching with authority. The scripture says, not as the scribes do. Um, the way he even teaches carries a certain kind of authority. He's just forgiving people's sin. He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's giving ears to the deaf. He's raising the dead. He's calming the sea. He's feeding thousands of people. Uh, with a couple fish and a few loaves. He binds Satan. He redefines the Sabbath, even calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Even in his interaction with these people, he's the one that's asking them to answer him. Last week we saw he curses a fig tree and, and this fig tree responds by withering up. He's cleansing the temple. He corrects the religious authorities. His authority is astonishing the way that Jesus is conducting his business. And even his refusal to answer them in this story as they come is him exercising. It's an expression of his authority. And so this issue that we see here in verse 27, let's just walk, walk our way through it. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. This is the Jewish high court. It, it exercised the political, the religious authority over the people of Israel. 
Um, They were involved in both doctrinal matters and civic matters. Um, The only thing they couldn't do is kind of exercise capital punishment, which is why we see them appealing to Pilate and to Rome when they finally want to get rid of Jesus. And all of these things are happening that we see in in these chapters between 11 and 15 in and around the temple. And the Sanhedrin, these, these elders, these scribes, these chief priests, they're convinced that Jesus has no authority, that he's acting outside of his authority because Jesus is condemning the temple practices and he's condemning their authority. Tony Marita talks about the big three T's in, in Judaism, the Torah, their territory, the land, and the temple. Um, and here's Jesus operating in the temple He's changing the way that, that they're using the temple and, and essentially he will come as a replacement for the temple. Um, Keller kind of gives us overview of the temple that I find um, helpful. In the beginning, God sets us uh, humanity in this, in this sanctuary, a place that we could live in the presence of God, a temple, if you will, in Eden. Um, but because of our rebellion, because of our rejecting God, we're banished from God's presence. We're, we're set outside the sanctuary of God. And yet God in his loving kindness, even in the wilderness, creates a movable temple, a tabernacle where people could draw near to be in the presence of God. And in that temple was this holy of holy where only the high priest and only once a year was allowed to enter. Eventually, God allows Solomon to build this permanent physical temple, this sanctuary where his presence would dwell, where his people could come and worship him. And yet it gets destroyed The people are taken into exile. And then years later, as they're returning from Babylon, um, they build a second temple. But it doesn't quite live up to the grand vision of the prophets. As this new foundation is laid, we're seeing in Ezra, some of the older people wept because it was far less splendid than Solomon's temple. And it's this post-exilic temple that we see Jesus operating in. And this is all a foreshadow again of what will be the final temple that temple being Jesus himself. In Mark 15, we're gonna, we're gonna see how this is, is gonna happen, how this is gonna be. The, that curtain that separates the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, where only the high priest could enter once a year, is gonna be torn in two. Jesus himself is gonna usher us into the presence of God. We have access to the presence of God now through Jesus Christ. To meet God, we don't have to go to a temple in Jerusalem we go to something that is far greater than the temple, that is Jesus himself. And so this is the path that Jesus is, is walking on. And this is this moment of conflict that we see between the leaders um, who are leading the temple, who are leading the people, um, them sensing that they have something to lose, mainly their authority, their power. Um, and this is why Jesus is being confronted by them. Um, And so they come to him asking, by what authority or who gave you authority to do these things? These things are these incidents that are happening in and around the temple uh, that you saw last week, the cleansing of the temple. And essentially coming to him and asking him the question, hey, who do you think you are, buddy? Who do you think you are to be able to tell people what to do, to be able to contradict what we have? And so they come with this question. And Jesus, as he often does in kind of this rabbinic tradition, answers their question with a question. He's not trying to dodge the question. He's not trying to obfuscate in any kind of way, but he's trying to get to the real heart of the issue. And so he asked them this question. Then the leaders who are trying to trap Jesus with this question end up in their own kind of trap. Because if he asked the question, is John legitimate? 
Was John's baptism, was John's ministry from heaven or from man? Was, it, was, he, was he sent by God or was he just some crazy guy coming out of, the, uh, out of the wilderness? And he puts them in this kind of conundrum because if they answer from heaven, uh, uh, if John was sent by God, if John the Baptist who comes in creating the way, making the way for Jesus, uh, saying that Jesus is the, the promised Messiah, the lamb uh, that was promised, then they've rejected him. They've rejected God. But if they say he's from man, um, John was widely accepted as a, as, as a prophet by the people. And so they fear uh, the people. They fear that the people might incite some kind of um, violence as well. And so they take this kind of uh, easy path out and say, mm, I don't know. They just kind of claim ignorance. If John was sent from God to prepare the way of Jesus, we see everything that we need to know about Jesus's authority when he's baptized by John. If we go back and, and we actually see Jesus being baptized by John, um, what happens what, when he's baptized? The voice of God himself, the father, um, comes out and explodes and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove in this, at this time. This authority being placed on Jesus by God the Father himself. And so Jesus, in refusing to answer their question directly, reveals their hypocrisy. He reveals their misuse of authority. He reveals their fear of losing power, um, of losing their authority by the people. He reveals that this uh, Sanhedrin is incompetent to be able to judge Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, so are you and I. We too are not in a position to be able to judge the authority of Jesus rightly. They knew if they acknowledged Jesus's authority, if Jesus is who he says he was, everything would change for them. The status quo would be gone. Um, let me let you in on a little secret uh, about the worst thing about being a pastor or a Bible teacher. Um, this past uh, while, while, while preparing this sermon, um, you're reading through this, you're examining this, and man, I could just feel my judgmental attitude toward the Sanhedrin. My, I was just smug towards them. You're like, these guys are such a joke. I mean, how could they miss it? How could they not see um, with all the prophecy that's come, all the prophets that have come, how could they miss it? How could they mistreat Jesus this way? And then you get this little tap on the shoulder, this little tap on, on your heart's shoulder by the Holy Spirit. Um, revealing all the ways that I am just like them. All the ways that I want to um, be like David. Do you remember David in, in the Psalms, uh, in the Old Testament? Um, the prophet Nathan comes to him and he tells him this story about a rich man who has, you know, flocks and flocks of sheep. And he has a neighbor, this poor man who has one sheep. And the rich man takes the man's one sheep and he um, takes it for himself, sacrifices it, kills it. And David is enraged by this. And he's like, I want that man brought before me. And Nathan turns the tables and says, you are that man. And we have this kind of moment uh, in, in the scripture here where it's easy to look to these religious elite and yet not see ourselves in their place as well. Because if we affirm that Jesus is the ultimate authority, then we must give up control just like they would have had to. We have to give up our control of our lives to him. If Jesus is the ultimate authority, if he is the son of God, 
If he is who he says he is, then nothing really belongs to us. Just as the scripture says, you are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6, that you have been bought with a price. And so we glorify God in our bodies because of that. Even our bodies on our own. If Jesus is the ultimate authority, we don't get to live independent of God in any area of our life. Our relationships, how we go about them, how we interact with them, all come under the authority of Jesus. How we use our time, how we pursue our careers, how we obtain and use and steward our material possessions, our sexuality, how we spend our money, all of these things then become under the authority of Jesus. And it was Jesus's authority that threatened the Sanhedrin's authority. It scared them. They didn't really want to examine the evidence because they knew the implications if it were true. And so they come with these other kind of questions and intellectual questions. And so many times I can be the same way. I want to kind of hide my own selfish desires with questions and and intellectual theories and posturing and all these sorts of different things instead of just admitting that Jesus is king. Aldous Huxley, he was an English philosopher, prolific writer. Um, His most famous book, uh, Brave New World. Um, uh, He actually lived here in LA the second half of his life, even though he was English. Um, He was nominated for the Nobel Prize seven times um, and was really one of the foremost intellectuals of his day. And what I like about him is he, he just calls balls and strikes as it is. And so listen, this is what he said back in his day. He said, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality imposed by God because it interfered with our sexual freedom. You could... Sexual freedom is, is, is the example he gives, but you could replace that with all kinds of other ways that we want freedom apart from God. We essentially want to enthrone ourselves. And in our deepest parts of our being, don't we know this to be true? Yet often like these religious elites that we see, we mask our rebellion, we mask our unbelief with more questions. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. And if you're, if you're with us this morning and you're uh, exploring faith, you're trying to uh, examine the claims of Jesus and Christianity, I mean, we're so glad that you are, are tuning in with us this morning. But there's a couple ways that we can ask questions, isn't there? We can ask questions really seeking the answers, looking for the information, trying to examine these truths and weigh them up. Or we can ask questions as a way to kind of obfuscate, to mask clarity, to just confuse things even more. This has become such a skill and such an art, uh, especially in our time today, um, especially as we look to politics and all sorts of different things. And it's the easiest form. I used to do this as a teenager, right? If you've been um, in high school, uh, which is when I did it, you go to a class and you knew there might be a test or you knew it might be a quiz. And so you would just start peppering your teacher with all kinds of questions uh, that were kind of on subject, but really to just kind of like take you enough off track to not actually have to do the one thing that you didn't want to do. I hope you're asking the first kind of questions today. We're actually looking and asking questions that lead us into truth, that lead us to a destination. Jesus actually promises us that if we do that, we'll find. If we seek him, we will find. If we knock, it will be opened unto us. 
But this isn't what's happening with these religious elites. Maybe all this talk of Jesus being the ultimate authority as we've looked at this has got your hackles up a little bit. I admit it, it, it gets mine too. It's not easy to actually think about someone else being an authority over us. Our, our natural kind of instinct, one is human beings and two, let's just be honest as Americans, is that I wanna be in charge. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Whether it be the government, whether it be uh, my, my boss, whatever it is, we want to live as fiercely, ruggedly independent people. But I want us to dig deeper and listen to Jesus because Jesus is gonna tell his final parable in Mark's gospel to these people in response to the way that you and I might even be feeling this morning. We start to talk about Jesus having authority over us in every area of our life. And it just starts to feel uncomfortable because we know in our heart what the implications of that may be. Because the nature of his authority is very different And this is the good news as he tells a story. The nature of his authority is very different than the way you and I think about authority and probably even the way you and I wield our authority. And so he he begins to tell this story about a man who plants a vineyard. This isn't just any old story. Just isn't, Jesus isn't thinking randomly here. Jesus is very intentional in the story that he's telling. In some ways he's retelling um, a story from Isaiah chapter five um, in which um, God plants a vineyard. Um, and this vineyard really is, is this national symbol for Israel. Just like America, we've got national symbols, whether it's the bald eagle or, or whatever it is. For Israel, their national kind of symbol was a vineyard. They were a vine. Um, even within the temple, it's decorated over doorways and things like this. They would have uh, these vines built into the temple as a reminder, as a symbol um, to them. Let me just read uh, the, the, the beginning parts of, of Isaiah chapter five. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. Does this sound familiar? This is exactly what Jesus is describing here. But it yielded wild grapes. It, it yielded bad fruit. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Jesus is asking the same kind of question as he comes. Why have you, these religious leaders who are in charge of caring for the vineyard, why is it producing bad fruit? What will I, uh, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. It will, I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. This is the fruit he wanted to come from his vineyard. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Also in Psalm 80, it's, it describes uh, the, God's people as this vineyard. And so these tenants, back to Jesus' story, notice that that's what they are. They're tenants. They're not the owners. They've been left um, to, to use the space. They're meant to cultivate it. They're meant to care for it. They're meant to take care of it on behalf of the owner. And these are these religious leaders of Israel, the very people who are questioning Jesus. And so in the story, the owner sends his servants out and he sends them out. 
These servants are representative of, of what God has done for his people all along. Time after time, he has sent prophets to them. He goes and he sends his prophets to get the vineyard back to what it's supposed to be away from idol worship, to return to the living God, to return to recognizing Yahweh, God as their Lord and authority of their life. And yet what happens? Every time he sends a prophet, the escalation of violence happens. Notice in in Jesus' story, the first servant is beat and he's sent out empty-handed. He sends another servant. This one's struck on the head, the escalation of violence, and he's treated shamefully. He sends another And they kill him. And this is exactly what's happened throughout redemptive history. As God has sent prophets to his people, they suffer. Jeremiah is beaten and put in stocks. Isaiah, tradition says, was sawed in two. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple. John the Baptist ends up beheaded. Over and over again, God, out of his mercy and his kindness, sends uh, people to the vineyard, to his people, And they are rejected, beaten, even sometimes killed. And so what is the owner to do? This is the climax of of this uh, here. The climax isn't the end. It's really in in verse six. He says, he still had one other, a beloved son. Notice the language, beloved son. Finally, he sent sent, sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Surely if I send my own son to them, Not just my servants, not just people who work for me, flesh and blood, my own son, they'll respect him. This is some serious patience and grace, isn't it, that the the landowner has. In spite of your evil, in spite of your wicked actions to my servants, if you'll receive my son, if you'll honor him as my son, What's implied here is that I I, I will overlook, I I, I will forgive your past actions. I'm going to give you another chance, time after time after time. I have to ask the question, I I have a son. I have one son. I've got two daughters and a son. Would Would I send my son? I mean, look at, look at how the escalation of violence that continued to happen after who was sent. Would I have sent my son? Would you have sent yours? The answer, I, I have to be honest, is no. <laughs> I think I'd be sending like the police. I'd be sending someone um, armed that could go in and, and uh, enact justice in this moment. And yet this is what he does. What kind of owner is this? He sees... Uh, And so the tenants see the son coming. He's alone. He's unarmed. Maybe they assume since it's the son coming and not the owner that the owner has died. He's he's lived afar off. And they devise this plan. If we can kill him, and this is ours, we'll be done with him. We'll be rid of him once and for all. These kind of squatter's rights kick in at this moment. And so they slay him. They throw him out of the vineyard. Um, Some scholars think this is a possible uh, allusion to Jesus being taken outside the gates of the city to be crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. They devise this plan because they want to be free of the master's authority. And so the question then is, well, what will the owner do? What should the owner do? What does justice demand he do. 
Justice is this major concept in our national dialogue right now, isn't it? Whether that's racial uh, justice, unjust practices toward people based on their color, being made right, economic justice, um, even this week, you know, Wall Street versus the, the Redditors on, on who can invest and buy different things. We want economic justice. We want a just government. And just because you're in positions of power doesn't mean you get to break the rules. We go on and on, a myriad of examples of how justice and our demand for it in our national conversation is happening right now. But here's the question that if we have to stop and think about this morning, what are we basing our appeals of justice on? Because survival of the fittest would say, well, so what if there are some portions of humanity that get run over? What does it matter if the rich and powerful, if those of a certain ethnic class, if those of a certain kind of gender, whatever it may be, rise to the top uh, on the backs of other people. Survival of the fittest. And yet we know in our heart that's not true. We know as we've been intrinsically made as humans and we're not just like the animals, that we've been created in the image of God himself. But the problem is, is when we reject God as authority, as the ultimate authority, as owner of the vineyard, when we reject his son, our sense of justice becomes incoherent at times. So we call and we demand justice for a woman, but somehow that means being able to kill another baby, her baby. How, how is that justice? We want access to healthcare in the richest country in the world. And yet somehow that gets equated to communism or socialism or, or some other kind of evil. We've lost our, our way when we think about justice. It becomes incoherent because we think we own the vineyard. We, like our predecessors before us, are producing bad fruit. And so what is the vineyard owner to do? On the one hand, we, we want him to enact justice. There have been people that have been killed, innocent people who have been killed from you trying to hold on to something that doesn't rightfully belong to you. And so the owner rightfully can enact justice. When we think about God and his justice, when we think about his mercy and his kindness, Romans 11, uh, 22, Paul writes this. He says, note the kindness and the severity of God. We struggle to, to hold justice and mercy and forgiveness and balance. And yet God does this perfectly. But we do come to verse nine, where there is a judgment. There is a reckoning. Jesus in this immediate context tells him, uh, in the parable, that they will be replaced. You tenants who are meant to be managing and overseeing the, the, the temple will be replaced. This Sanhedrin, the, 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 the people in authority over Israel are gonna be replaced by Jesus. His authority will be given to, to his disciples, to his followers, the, namely his 12 disciples uh, that are with him, but this goes on and on. Eventually, Jesus even says, all authority that is given to me in heaven, I give to you as you go out to create, uh, to, to enact the great commission. And so what is the owner to do? To let evil just kind of continue is evil itself. And so he comes 
and he enacts justice. He destroys the tenants and he gives the vineyard to others. And then in verse 10, um, Jesus is going to quote Psalm 118. He's going to pull the pieces of this together for them, um, if you will. In some ways, he's answering their questions without really answering their questions. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He changes metaphors from a vineyard to a building now. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus uh, himself is, is the cornerstone that will, uh, will replace this old temple system. He is now the cornerstone that the new temple will be built on. A cornerstone is really the most important stone as we set a, a building, especially in that time. It sets stability, it sets the symmetry. And yet here, the builders, um, the rulers during that time have rejected Jesus. He became a stumbling block, not a cornerstone. And they were destroyed because of it. We tend to think of freedom as independence, especially as Americans. We, we tend to think of freedom as freedom from something else, that we can be fully independent, fully autonomous, um, independent from God. But here's the reality is that we will always have an ultimate authority in our lives. Even if it's one of our kind of choosing, that might be our career, it might be our family, our sexuality, money, reputation, prestige, power, these things that we have set our life upon, these things that have become cornerstones in our lives, that if they were to crumble and fail, the rest of our, our, our life that we have built upon it fails with it. And yet none of these things can bear the weight of a life built upon them. Eventually they will crumble. And so we need to see rightly the true freedom is seeing God and his authority in our life as good news. Um, Tim Keller kind of uses this uh, uh, illustration of a fish. Um, we, you might, uh, actually my eldest daughter uh, just this week asked me if she could get uh, a fish. She's like, fish are only 30 cents. Can I get some goldfish? I'm like, sure, I guess. Right, but we, imagine if I had a, a, a goldfish bowl here with a couple of goldfish in it. And you're like, man, what a life is that for that goldfish to live? He's all contained in that. We need to free him from that. We need to, we need to smash uh, what's, what's holding him there and let him be free. And so we do that. We smash the bowl, water flows out. And what happens to the fish? He got his independence. He's free, but he's also dead <laughs> because he was meant to live in water. See, freedom from a Christian perspective isn't just being completely autonomous from God. It's living life the way that God has actually created us to be under our creator. That God, the good vineyard owner, actually leads us to a life as Jesus continues to lay out um, on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a life that leads to flourishing. It's a life that leads to life, not a life to death. We think of freedom as apart from God, just like Adam and Eve. It doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to flourishing. It leads to a life of struggle, of destruction and death. And so my question for us this morning is this that we see in verse 11. Is Jesus as the cornerstone of your life? Is it marvelous in our eyes? Or is it something that we're fearful of? Is it something that we're trying to resist? Um, just as the leaders in, in Israel were trying to do. Are we trying to enthrone Jesus? <laughs> 
Are we trying to enthrone ourselves? What is our cornerstone right now? I want to finish our time um, by looking at a verse uh, that, that builds on this idea of Jesus as a cornerstone in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is Peter's instructions to us. He says, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. (laughs) As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. These uh, tenants were, were put to shame ultimately by the owner because they rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. And we are given the same choice this morning. If you're not a believer this morning, what are we building your life upon? If it's not Jesus Christ as our cornerstone, eventually our life fails, it crumbles. And eventually we have to stand before God in judgment for rejecting his son. But even for those of us that would claim to be believers, we constantly can be dethroning Jesus and enthroning ourselves. Every day we're given this choice to enthrone Jesus as king of our lives or to dethrone him and sit on the throne of our lives, our own selves. The good news is if if we accept Jesus again, time and time, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. The default posture of the human heart is rebellion against God as we see in Romans 8. But the good news is, is if we'll accept Jesus, he gives us a a new heart. He gives us his spirit, which enables us, empowers us, which produces that good fruit that he's looking for, which joyfully submits to God. And so if we don't answer the question, well, who is Jesus rightly? Our whole life becomes out of alignment. Our life doesn't have the foundation. The cornerstone is off kilter. It can't bear the weight of all that we're asking it to bear in our lives. If we don't get this answer right of Jesus and his authority, of Jesus as king and recognizing that, it throws off all the other questions in life that we ask about who we are, about what our purpose is, about what the foundation of our life is built on. We don't get the right answers when pursuing justice. We don't get the right answers when we Um, Think about how we spend our money or, or what is beautiful or sexual pleasure or whatever else it is in our life. Everything else becomes bad fruit. And so my question for us this morning as we close is are we enthroning Jesus as king? Or are we trying to kind of mask that under intellectual questions? Are we trying to live our life apart from God? Are we literally rejecting all of the prophets that he sent to us before, even his son? Today, we have that choice once again to recommit um, to enthroning Jesus in our own lives. If you've never done that, um, even for the first time, if you're not a believer, um, man, I would invite you this morning um, to, to talk to one of the leaders of, our, uh, of the church here, maybe you have friends who've 
who've uh, given you the link or, or you might even be watching with. And if you are a believer, um, I'd invite you to pray the prayer that I end up praying, a prayer that we find in the Bible all the time. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Those times where I don't believe that your authority is good. Those times where I, I believe that life apart from you is better, where I get to call the shots of my own life and it always leads me into pain and struggle and eventually death, death of relationships, death of families, death of careers, whatever it may be, all the things that just can't bear the weight of the lives that we are building it upon. And so let me pray for us. Let me pray for myself again, um, that we would see Jesus for who he is and all of his beauty and all of his splendor, that we would understand justice the right way, that you and I deserve to be destroyed. And yet God in his mercy and long suffering is continually offering us an olive branch once again through his son, Jesus Christ. Will we receive him as king once again today? Let me pray for us.